0: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing.
1: But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this
0: is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 21, the story of President Lincoln's Secretary of War, Simon Cameron, and the scandals that plagued his long tenure amongst the Washington elite.
0: An evening of celebration was held in Washington on the night of April 21st, 1861. The honoree, the recently inaugurated President Abraham Lincoln.
1: Swaths of DC insiders gathered together to celebrate the new president, including men from Lincoln's own cabinet. It was a contentious group, and they tried to play nice at the party, but one internal dispute was about to rear its head.
0: Lincoln's new Secretary of War, Simon Cameron, had a bone to pick with Thaddeus Stevens, a member of the House of Representatives. Cameron had heard through the grapevine that Stevens had accused him of being a thief, in front of the president, no less.
1: Lincoln had tried to defend his Secretary of War, asking if Stevens thought Cameron would steal from the administration. Stevens spat back bitterly, I don't think he would steal a red-hot stove. In
0: 1861, those were fighting words. So, in the middle of the party, the Secretary of War sauntered up to Stevens while he was chatting with Lincoln and demanded that he take back his lies.
1: In reply, Stevens smugly turned to Lincoln and said, I believe I told you he would not steal a red-hot stove. I will now take that back.
0: The crowd, including Lincoln, erupted with laughter. Cameron was both embarrassed and infuriated. He would give anything to defend himself against the allegations.
1: Unfortunately, they were true. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast Original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the
0: search bar. Simon Cameron had a lot in common with some of the figures we've covered lately. Like Boss Tweed, he was a master of graft and ran local politics like a well-oiled machine. Like Spiro Agnew, he reached the top of the political ladder and was forced to resign in disgrace. What's unique about Cameron is that he was able to do all these things and more in one lifetime.
1: And, of course, that he stumbled into just the wrong position at just the wrong time, as Secretary of War during the outbreak of the Civil War.
0: It was an unlikely job for Simon Cameron, who had no military experience and a background full of scandal. He was an unlikely fit for politics in the first place. Cameron didn't come from prestige or wealth. Far from it.
1: Shortly after Cameron was born in 1799, his family fell on hard times. They moved into a small-frame house with no furniture in Sunbury, Pennsylvania. Then, his father died in 1810, leaving the family even more desperately broke. His widowed mother couldn't afford to support all her children, so the 11-year-old Simon was placed up for adoption.
0: To be cast out as an orphan created a deep chip on Cameron's shoulder. He vowed to be a wealthy man one day to avoid ever feeling this kind of shame and uncertainty again.
1: The tides were already shifting. Cameron was quickly adopted by Peter Grahl, a local and respected physician and his wife. After finding some new normal with the Grahls, by the time Cameron was a teenager, he had grown hungry for glory. In 1816, at 17 years old, he was apprenticing himself to a printer, James Peacock, the publisher of the Pennsylvania Republican.
0: While Cameron had been a Democrat by default, the same party the Grawls belonged to, working for the paper was about to change that. At the time, the Pennsylvania Republican was a biased source, able to be bought by politicians to support their own agendas. But young Cameron didn't see this as corruption. He saw opportunity. Namely, just how much power could be gained through political sway. He wanted to be a part of it immediately.
1: And just a year later, 18 year old Cameron was attending every session of the Pennsylvania General Assembly as a reporter. The young man's steadfast presence forged a unique sense of trust between him and Pennsylvania's most influential politicians. Whatever he lacked in pedigree, he more than compensated for in networking.
0: And, as Cameron knew by now, newspapers held great influence during elections. The young Simon Cameron already had two incredible tools at his disposal, his lucrative apprenticeship at the paper, and his professional relationships with politicians.
1: Cameron became obsessed with uniting the different branches of the old Republican Party, which called for an end to slavery. And in January of 1821, when 22-year-old Cameron became the editor of the Pennsylvania newspaper, then known as the Bucks County Messenger, he pushed his Republican agenda there,
0: too. Under Cameron, the paper became a safe place for Republicans to preach to readers without censorship. Naturally, this made local Republican politicians quite fond of him.
1: Unfortunately, however much the politicians loved the messenger, the paper wasn't making any money. Within months, Cameron was in dire financial straits.
0: So, since the paper wasn't reaching their sales goals independently, he merged The Messenger with its rival paper, The Democratic. A desperate solution. But still, the sales couldn't support the salaries of the two paper's editors. After less than a year, Cameron finally just sold his share and left.
1: From there, he moved to Washington, D.C. and took a job as a compositor for the Congressional Globe, which published government proceedings. The position was a dream for Cameron, who wanted nothing more than a foot in the door of Washington politics.
0: However, as far as salaries go, this job, too, paid little. When the Congressional session ended in December of 1821, Cameron gave up the ghost and moved back to Pennsylvania.
1: After owning a paper, selling it, moving to Washington, and returning to his home state, all in under 12 months, the 22-year-old Cameron willed his next year to be less hectic. But then, after marrying his wife Margaret in October of 1822, Cameron fretted that he was settling into an average life. That wouldn't do. He wanted an extraordinary life. And that only seemed possible through politics.
0: So, he went back to where it all started. Using his press connections in Pennsylvania, he secured a loan to buy the Pennsylvania Republican, which he then merged with the Pennsylvania Intelligencer. The sway of the newspaper would prove timely. Thanks to the Intelligencer's influence, Cameron was able to help his brother's father-in-law get elected as governor of Pennsylvania.
1: As a thank you from the governor, all of the state's official work was allocated to a single printer, the Intelligencer. Simon Cameron was all but set to become a tycoon in the printing business.
0: In February of 1827, the state printing contract awarded him a payment of $200 a month, about $5,000 today. Bear in mind, that income was in addition to the profits from his paper sales.
1: In 1832, after spending five years accruing wealth, Cameron had enough capital to venture into yet another industry, banking. He opened the Bank of Middletown in Middletown, Pennsylvania. There he learned the ins and outs of the financial system, and more importantly, all the ways in which he could work around it.
0: Cameron also used his growing wealth to diversify his business ventures. He eventually became the president of two railroad companies, thanks to his brother's father-in-law, the state governor. By
1: 1837, at 38 years old, Simon Cameron was a bank owner, newspaper editor, railroad president, the state's printer, and deeply entrenched in the Pennsylvania political machine. His childhood of poverty and frailty were long behind him. Now he'd earned the nickname Czar of Pennsylvania. With his prime years still ahead, he set his sights on his next goal, political office.
0: That same year, President Andrew Jackson was looking for a governor for the new Michigan territory. Cameron leaned on the politicians he'd helped throughout the years for a recommendation, including Pennsylvania Senator James Buchanan.
1: To Cameron's dismay, he wasn't the first in line for the role. Jackson nominated someone else. However, Jackson was on his way out. Soon after, in March of 1837, Martin Van Buren took office. And this time, Cameron's loyalty to the president would pay off in spades.
0: Cameron felt like he was owed something, considering his paper support for the Van Buren campaign. So he reminded Senator Buchanan of how helpful he'd been and asked to be compensated accordingly. It wasn't the first time Cameron engaged in quid pro quo, nor would it be the last.
1: The following year in 1838, Senator Buchanan pulled some strings. Cameron was appointed as the commissioner to settle claims with the Winnebago tribe, now part of the Ho-Chunk Nation, who had settled in the Midwest. The year before, the Winnebago tribe had signed a treaty for the eventual surrender of the lands they held west of the Mississippi River. In exchange, payments of $200,000 were allocated to specific tribal leaders, and the government would also pay $100,000 to mixed-race individuals who were at least one-quarter Winnebago.
0: Cameron's job with his co-commissioner, James Murray, was to investigate these mixed-race Winnebago and confirm their family background with tribe leaders. This is one of the few jobs that Cameron didn't have any relevant experience in, but he sold Buchanan on the notion that his banking background would make him a good fit.
1: So, in August of 1838, Cameron moved his family from Pennsylvania to Wisconsin. He and Murray both soon proved to be bad fits for the job. Their boss had essentially given them carte blanche to evaluate the claims however they wanted. And always one to play fast and loose with the rules, Cameron would be accused of extorting dozens of Winnebago. The accusations would color the rest of his career.
0: When we come back, Simon Cameron earns a new nickname and brings his troubled business tactics to Washington, D.C. Now back to the story.
1: In 1838, entrepreneur Simon Cameron all but bullied Senator James Buchanan into helping him secure a new job, settling land claims with the Winnebago. Cameron and his colleague James Murray, though, were hardly the men for a job with so little oversight and so much potential for
0: graft. In 1838, Cameron and Murray traveled from Detroit to Chicago with Daniel M. Broadhead, a Philadelphia lawyer and banker. Broadhead had a sinister plan. He wanted to turn a profit by tricking those who were mixed-race Winnebago who were supposed to receive payments from the treaty into hiring him as a lawyer.
1: Because the Winnebagos had little way of gauging what was normal for the American banking or justice systems, the commissioners allowed the claimants to use advocates who were granted the power of attorney. Unfortunately. These so-called advocates were greedy, politically-connected men who smelled opportunity. They duped their clients and take the claims money for themselves. Broadhead was one of these swindlers.
0: When word eventually got back to D.C. about what was happening, everyone assumed that Cameron and Murray were working in cahoots with Broadhead. After all, the scam couldn't work without the commissioner's approval or their total ignorance. And since the three men had traveled together all the way from Detroit to Chicago, ignorance seemed unlikely.
1: James Murray wrote a letter to their boss stating that he didn't know Broadhead before he traveled with him. He claimed he had no preconceived plans to commit crimes with the lawyer.
0: Cameron signed the letter, too, and implied that he didn't know Broadhead. This was a lie, though. He had met Broadhead before through his banking connections.
1: While the extent to which Cameron actually conspired with Broadhead is unclear, the results were definitely damning. Murray and Cameron weren't legally reprimanded upon returning to Washington, but many politicians had heard about the incident through the grapevine, which, in D.C., was worse.
0: To them, Simon Cameron looked like a dishonest thief. And denying he knew Broadhead, despite evidence to the contrary, only made him look even more guilty. The whispers spread through Washington. The former czar of Pennsylvania had swindled the Winnebago out of $66,000.
1: Now, Cameron had another nickname, the great Winnebago chief. It would follow him for the rest of his career.
0: After being suspended from the commission in 1840, Cameron tried to put the incident behind him and move on. This was hard, considering that most of America thought he was a con artist. But after five years, his opportunity finally came. In 1845, Senator James Buchanan was elevated to Secretary of State. Cameron swooped in to take his seat.
1: Unfortunately, he only served one term. When he came up for re-election, Buchanan, who had stuck his neck out for Cameron too many times for too little gain, withdrew his support and backed a different candidate.
0: Feeling betrayed, Cameron retreated to Pennsylvania to regroup. He spent eight years in private life before he made his next run. But in 1857, Cameron was once again back in the Senate.
1: But the sheen of being a senator again quickly wore off. Cameron wanted to go bigger. So in 1860, he threw his hat in the ring for the Republican presidential nomination.
0: When the Republican National Convention rolled around, Cameron had the support of the Pennsylvania delegation. He thought that might be enough to clinch the nomination.
1: But Cameron's popularity in Pennsylvania paled in comparison to the widespread adoration of Abraham Lincoln.
0: Realizing he didn't have a chance at winning, Cameron gracefully withdrew his name and turned his delegates over to Lincoln. As he must have hoped, Lincoln's team wanted to offer him some measure of gratitude. They promised him a cabinet position. Cameron was hoping for Secretary of the Treasury. However,
1: the campaign managers didn't explicitly ask Lincoln's permission to make this promise. And when Lincoln learned about it, he was furious. He had no intention of giving away any coveted spot, especially not to someone like Simon Cameron, who had years of rumors trailing behind him. After his election, Lincoln, apologetic but firm, reached out to Cameron and retracted the offer.
0: The president's reaction shocked Cameron. He thought the deal was all but done. But Cameron was undeterred. He simply kept badgering the president, hoping to pressure him into offering another position.
1: At the same time, nearly everyone else was pressuring Lincoln not to let Cameron join his ranks. Vice President Hannibal Hamlin was against it. So were politicians from across the country. Joseph Medill, a journalist with the Chicago Tribune, wrote a letter to the president saying... Republicans here all say that Pennsylvania should have a good place in the Cabinet, Secretary of Treasury or Interior, but that it should not be Cameron. As Senator Kingsley Bingham observed to me, Lincoln don't want a thief in his Cabinet to have charge of the Treasury.
0: But Cameron apparently was more of a nuisance. By March 5th, Lincoln had caved under the pressure from Cameron and decided to give him a chance as Secretary of War.
1: At first, Cameron scoffed a bit that it wasn't his ideal role in the Treasury. But considering how hard he'd had to press to get any job in the Cabinet, he couldn't complain.
0: Cameron was underestimating the role. Secretary of War was about to become the busiest job in the Cabinet. In just one month, the Civil War would begin.
1: Lincoln's election signaled that the tensions over slavery were finally about to boil over. Lincoln had long supported the abolitionist movement, which made him an immediate enemy to the South. The first battle began on April 12, 1861, barely a month after Lincoln's inauguration. It was time to prepare the North for battle. The brunt of this task fell to the Secretary of War.
0: Which was problematic, given that Simon Cameron was a month into the job and had no military experience. He didn't know the first thing about war tactics or how to distribute supplies.
1: He told himself that with the help of his influential colleagues, he would make it through this trying period, just like he'd made it through all the others before it. And he wasn't wrong. He would endure, but he would leave incredible damage in his wake.
0: In late 1861, as the war raged on, Cameron wrote a routine report for Congress recapping the year. In the report, Cameron added a few of his own recommendations, including the formation of an army of former slaves. It was a controversial idea. Giving guns to slaves was not something many politicians supported, and the president himself hadn't condoned it.
1: When Lincoln read Cameron's report, He was inflamed at the liberties his secretary had taken. He said, "'General Cameron must take no such responsibility. That is a question which belongs exclusively to me.'"
0: Lincoln's fury only grew when an early copy of Cameron's report was published in the New York Tribune. It was the first stumble of a long and bumpy fall from grace for Cameron.
1: While he could have fired Cameron then and there, Lincoln was thoughtful. He considered his loyalty to Pennsylvania, the state that won him the presidency.
0: And with that, Lincoln decided to give Cameron another chance, albeit with a stipulation. If Cameron wanted to keep his job, he had to communicate with Lincoln before making any calls on his own. Cameron agreed.
1: But Cameron's name in the newspaper headlines had reminded the American public of his unethical dealings with the Winnebago tribe. Somehow, most of the public hadn't noticed until now that Cameron was working for Lincoln. And now, they were shocked the president was trusting a bona fide crook.
0: With his seedy past, citizens and officials alike were afraid that Cameron would use his new position to help himself and his friends instead of the divided nation. By the end of the year, various politicians had written to the president begging him not to put his trust in his new Secretary of War.
1: They were right. Just as expected, Cameron was using his position to pour money into the pockets of his friends and himself.
0: Coming up, Cameron's corruption finally has its consequences. Now back to the story.
1: Just a month after Simon Cameron became Secretary of War, he found himself in charge of a civil war. It was clear from day one that he was more interested in lining his pockets than in healing the wounds of a nation. Shortly after assuming his post, Cameron allowed his chief assistant, a man he met through the railroad business, to give generous federal grants to his own railway line. Cameron himself had an investment in the line which meant the government money was going into his own pockets.
0: Corruption is one thing, but to make matters even worse, Cameron was failing at the most basic tasks of his job as Secretary of War, putting the lives of Union soldiers in danger. In one instance, Cameron trusted his friend with $2 million to purchase supplies for the Union Army he proceeded to spend $22,000 on linen pants and straw hats, which disintegrated in basically any weather. When the first rainfall hit, the soldiers' uniforms were ruined.
1: It got even worse. The War Department, under Cameron's direction, even purchased expired food to feed Union troops, which made the soldiers sick.
0: Simon Cameron's penchant for cutting corners and hiring his cronies was yielding deadly consequences. It was clear that he was more concerned with helping his friends than he was in doing a good job.
1: In November of 1861, a congressional committee wrote a scathing report outlining Cameron's many mistakes. It was hundreds of pages long and took over a year and a half to complete. The report stated, such gross and unblushing frauds would have cost all who participated in them their heads in any other government than
0: ours. Cameron pleaded ignorance. He claimed that he had no idea his staff was corrupt. And Lincoln, busy leading a fractured country, had no time to gather proof to the contrary. So Cameron's days as Secretary of War dragged forward. But each one was more perilous than the last.
1: All of that changed in December of 1861. That month, Cameron approved an edict written by General John Charles Fremont. It was essentially an early version of the Emancipation Proclamation, calling for the confiscating of slaves from territories the Union Army conquered. Cameron gave little thought to signing off on the document before discussing it with Lincoln.
0: The president was furious. Once again, Cameron had arrogantly made a huge decision without Lincoln's approval. Lincoln had to backtrack and reject Fremont's edict. And then he had to deal with the issue of Cameron's disobedience. This meant holding a
1: meeting with his cabinet, excluding Cameron, of course. Lincoln sought the input of his trusted advisors as he posed the question, What can be done about Simon Cameron?
0: They all agreed that the Secretary of War had to go.
1: Soon, the president sent a brusque note to Cameron. He was being shifted to a different role. Namely, ambassador to Russia.
0: As far away from the Union as physically possible. Cameron knew something was amiss. But it wasn't an offer. It was a demand. Either take the role as ambassador or be forced out of politics altogether.
1: He was devastated. Allegedly, Cameron wept openly to his co-workers. The rest of the cabinet was so concerned about Cameron that they asked Lincoln to follow up with a nicer letter to soften the blow. Lincoln obliged and wrote to Cameron, Should you accept it, you will bear with you the assurance of my undiminished confidence, of my affectionate esteem, and of my sure expectation that you will be able to render services to your country not less important than those you could render at home.
0: With his ego stroked, Cameron quietly accepted his defeat.
1: In January 1862, Cameron formally resigned as Secretary of War the more qualified and level-headed Edwin Stanton took over the position.
0: When asked about his resignation, Cameron said that it was his decision to leave. He claimed Stanton would be good at the job and that he actively chose the man to replace him. Cameron spun the sudden change as one he created so he could move on to a better position.
1: Ambassador to Russia. It was by no means a low-level role. In fact, It was a coveted position, which gave Cameron an opportunity to save face in front of his family, friends, and supporters. It also required Cameron to travel often, keeping him out of everyone's hair in D.C.
0: In a letter to Lincoln, Cameron spun a tale of his time in the Cabinet, writing, I have devoted myself without intermission to my official duties. I have given them all my energies. I have done my best. It was impossible in the directions of operations so extensive, but that some mistakes happen and some complications and complaints arise.
1: Cameron simply couldn't pass up the opportunity to have the last word. Even to the man that had offered him another job, despite the fact that he'd so grossly failed his first, Cameron insisted the lies and corruption that haunted his term were not his fault. He did his best. But the job was simply too hard. Surprisingly, more than a few men agreed.
0: Biographer Russell Weagley defended Cameron nearly a century later, saying that he received blame for a good deal of administrative chaos that was not of his making, but unavoidable in the rapid expansion of his department and the Union armies. And Edwin Stanton, Cameron's replacement, was criticized just the same despite being substantially more prepared. Montgomery Blair, the postmaster general in 1861, called Stanton a scoundrel and said he made all sorts of fraudulent contracts to put money in his own pocket.
1: In time, Stanton's missteps indicated that he was just as corrupt and lax as Cameron had been. For all the criticism that befell the former Secretary of War, It seemed that Stanton's aptitude had been vastly overestimated.
0: In the years after his ousting, Cameron himself maintained a surprisingly positive attitude. He felt relieved to be out of such a stressful position and blessed with the opportunity to travel to a country that wasn't at war with itself.
1: Cameron even reflected on Lincoln's decision to be rid of him, writing... To my mind, some change of men is necessary for the preservation of the country. I needed no second whisper to induce me to give place to another.
0: It seemed that Cameron's days of weeping over Lincoln's decision had passed. From then on, he'd maintain that he gracefully stepped aside for Stanton.
1: However, that didn't mean Cameron was eager to set sail for Russia. He delayed his trip to avoid the bitter eastern winter, lingering around Washington until May. He used his free time to defend his choices as Secretary of War in every newspaper he still had connections with.
0: In May 1862, Cameron set sail for Russia, but he was by no means done with Washington.
1: After less than a year as ambassador to Russia, Cameron resigned in February of 1863 and began eyeing another position in Congress. Leaning on his former ties to Lincoln, he managed to gather enough support for another Senate run in 1867. He served for 10 years until his resignation in March of 1877.
0: Finally, at 78 years old, Cameron decided it was time to retire from all his pursuits, both business and political. After all, he had his children to support him. When he retired from the Senate, His son even took over his seat.
1: Yet even in retirement, Cameron had one last scandal for the books. That same year, in 1877, the 78-year-old was sued for $50,000 by a former Treasury Department employee, no less. The two had allegedly met at the St. Charles Hotel in New Orleans shortly after Cameron's wife died two years earlier. They spent an intimate night together, and Cameron boasted that he could, quote, progress the woman's career if she married him. He even promised her $300 as an incentive.
0: When Cameron didn't send the money, the woman took the story to the papers. It was a bizarre yet not unsurprising scandal to cap the career of Simon Cameron.
1: Even after his death in 1889, Cameron was the subject of discussion and gossip in the American public. His corruption, incompetence, and constant scandals cemented his spot in history, for better or worse.
0: One thing is certain. Simon Cameron set his sights on living a memorable life, and he got it. He was never ordinary, and he was never forgotten. It's hard to deny. The people who leave the strongest mark on history are often the ones who cause the most damage.
1: Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Scandal Number 20, the story of Senator Daniel Webster's secret mistress and several illegitimate children. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
0: To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time.
1: Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Emily Scheer with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner.